9. And so I want to go ahead and have you turn there, Romans chapter 9. And we're going we're gonna to kind of continue in our little series through the book of Romans and, and specifically chapter 9. And we, we really are going slow intentionally, especially through Romans 9. And the reason why is because, one, we want to understand what God says to us from his word. The second thing is we want to understand what God is not saying from his word. And, and, and this particular passage for, for some, uh, it, is, it is a passage of confusion and false doctrine and many false teachers actually will, will come to this particular passage and teach things that the Bible actually is not teaching. And so uh, it, it is important to understand what God's word says to us. Amen. I mean, it's important that we understand what God's word says. Would you agree with that? Would you also agree that it is, is critically equally important to understand what God is not saying? So when God says something, by default, he's not saying something else. Does that, does that make sense? And so we have to make sure in this particular passage that we clearly understand what God is teaching and we clearly understand what he's not teaching. And so uh, I figure that we will probably have six to eight lessons out of Romans 9 before we're done. I've never spent six to eight lessons on one chapter of the Bible, uh, but it is needful, and so here we are. And so with that being said, Romans chapter 9, uh, we've been studying Israel's past, and the doctrinal teaching of Romans chapter 9 is, is all to do with Israel. It, it is all to do with God's chosen people that, that he gave the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the law and the, and the service of the tabernacle and the promises and the fathers and ultimately through which Jesus Christ came. That is the point. We studied about Jacob and Esau, how that God chose through Jacob which nation he was going to, to work through. He did that with Abraham and continued that promise through Jacob and ultimately to the 12 tribes of Israel. What this passage in this text is not teaching is that God in eternity past had predestined individuals unto salvation and other individuals unto damnation. That is absolutely not what the text teaches. As a matter of fact, we've exhausted that up to this point in our study. This morning is, an, is another key text, and the title of the message this morning is called Questions, Clay, and Vessels. And the reason it's called that is because that was about the limit of my imagination this week. And so those actually are the three points <laughs> that we're going to work through. You know, I was struggling because I was like, man, I don't really have a cool title for this message. And then I thought, I wonder if Paul had cool titles for his sermons or if he just got up and preached the Bible, you know. And I think he just got up and preached the Bible. Amen. So if you'll forgive me for my lack of creativity this morning, we're going to talk about questions, clay, and vessels Remember last week, we talked about Pharaoh and how, how uh, God gave Pharaoh an opportunity to respond to him. God gave him the general revelation of creation. So, so Pharaoh had a knowledge that there was a God, and it wasn't Pharaoh. God also gave Pharaoh specific revelation, and he did that through Moses. Do you remember Moses went before Pharaoh, and he said, This is what God said, let my people go. So he had the exact words from God to his heart, and yet Pharaoh chose to reject and rebel against God. And God said, I'm going to harden his heart. And some people go to this passage and say, well, see there, Pharaoh never really had a chance. God set him up to fail. God predestined him for destruction. But as we studied the Bible, we saw very clearly that God's foreknowledge still has room for your free will. 
and Pharaoh's free will. And so Pharaoh rejected God's general revelation. Pharaoh rejected God's specific revelation. Pharaoh rejected the signs and the wonders that were done in his presence, the rod, the water that was turned to blood. And then God hardened his heart because of his rejection, because God's a gentleman. God gives you what you want. And, and, and he said that, I know Pharaoh's not going to obey. He told Moses that, but nevertheless, Moses went and gave him what God said, and ultimately, Pharaoh is accountable to God. And, and, and again, the issue last week we saw was that God's power and name was going to be manifest through Pharaoh's life. It could have been manifest through blessing Pharaoh because of Pharaoh's obedience, but Pharaoh didn't obey God. If he would have blessed the nation of Israel and let them go into the wilderness, and let them do what God had called them to do, the blessing of God would have abode on Pharaoh and all of Egypt. It actually did abide on them under, under Joseph. Do you remember how Joseph helped Egypt become a world power? But because of his rebellion of, of the nation of Israel, because of his rebellion of Jehovah God and the Word of God, God's name and God's power were still declared throughout all the earth, but it was done through Pharaoh's destruction. And Egypt's judgment, okay? And so with all those considerations of things that we've learned the last couple of weeks and how God is working through this nation of Israel and all the key elements that we've talked about, let's get into Romans 9 this morning, verses 19 to 24. It's on the screen. You can follow along uh, on the screen or in your Bible. And please keep all the things that we've learned the last four weeks in mind as we, as we read this passage. Romans 9 and verse 19. And thou wilt say unto, then unto me, why do they yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And, and, and before I pray, I just want you to understand that every verse that we just read was nothing but a bunch of questions. Actually, there was not a definitive statement in that entire text. It was six different questions. And, and that's really important as we begin this study. And so let me pray for us, because I need it, you need it, and let's ask God to teach us. Father, we, le we need you this morning. We, we love you. We thank you for the word. Uh, we thank you for the time of worship and praise. We thank you for the miracles of healing, uh, God, that you're doing right in the midst of our body. We give you glory for that. And uh, Father, this morning, your, your word says that, that pastors and teachers are to, are to edify the saints, we're to take the word of God and teach it so that the saints are perfected, so they're mature, they grow, so they can do the work of the ministry. And so Lord, help us today to be perfected in our faith and our understanding of your word. And may your Holy Spirit teach us today. I need you, Father, our church needs you. And so give us the, the wisdom from your word that only you can give. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so... So, you know, we, we've come through a lot of, a lot of material uh, concerning Israel and, and Jacob and Esau and Isaac and, uh, or Isaac and Esau, Jacob and 
Esau. And I mean, listen, we, we, Pharaoh, we've covered a ton of different scenarios where God is working through a nation and the choices that God have, has made. And even with Pharaoh choosing to harden his heart because he rebelled against God. And you may find yourself asking the same question that's, that's coined in verse 19. Why is God doing it like that? Why? Why, why is God doing it like that? Why, why is God lifting up a nation? Why is God working through an individual uh, and ultimately through his seed and through his lineage? Why is God doing that? And listen, we all ask why. I appreciate, again, the, the, the ladies that are here giving testimony to God. It would be real easy to ask God, why did I experience this issue with my health? Right? We, we ask questions all the time about why. And the first point of study is this. I want you to learn, hopefully from the Scripture and through this, this teaching on the nation of Israel, I want us to learn why why isn't always a good question. Why is not necessarily always a good question. In verse 19, the Bible says, Thou will say then unto me. In other words, after you consider everything that we've taught about the nation of Israel and, and God's election and, and, and God's providence through the Old Testament and God's hardening and destruction of Pharaoh, well, you might, you might be inclined to ask the question, why? Thou will say unto me, why doth he find fault? I mean, why is God going to judge Pharaoh? Because God ultimately hardened his heart. For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? You know, why is not always the best question to ask. And here's a key principle of Bible study that you want to get based on our, our text this morning. The key principle of Bible study is this. We never base a doctrine on a question. And I, and I gave you the, the, the disclaimer as we began reading this portion of Scripture. In this text, there are actually six questions that are being asked. And, and questions are not declarations of truth. Can, can you appreciate that statement? Que that is a statement, not a question. Questions are not a declaration of truth. Questions are to complement something that's already been said. Questions are to interrogate our, our heart attitude toward what's been said, not to declare new truth. Many times in the Bible, cults and false religious systems teach doctrines from questions in the Bible. Let me give you an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29. The Bible says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? That's a question. And why then are they baptized for the dead? That's another question. That one verse has two questions. My point is, many times people will take a passage like 1 Corinthians 15 and say, See there, the Bible says that you can be baptized for the dead. In other words, if your grandmother or grandfather or aunt or uncle or spouse has died and they have rejected Christ in their life, somehow, some way, your willingness to be baptized on their behalf will somehow change their eternal state. Friend, that is basing a doctrine on a question, and that's not good Bible study. That's, that's false doctrine. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says this, as it is appointed unto men 
wants to die, but after this, the judgment. And once you die, your eternity is sealed and secure forever. Whether that's in Christ for all of eternity, or whether it's in a devil's hell for all of eternity, once you die, there is no one that will be baptized on your behalf, give money on your behalf, do anything on your behalf that will change your eternal standing. But, but people take the Bible and wrestle it out of context. And so, and so it, it is important for us that we don't base doctrine on questions. We base doctrine on definitive statements as we compare Scripture with Scripture. And again, it's easy to go to this portion of Scripture and to say, well, see there, uh, you know, the thing formed can't say to the thing that formed it, why have you made thee thus? And, and, and listen, because in eternity past, God formed some people to be saved and he formed other people to be destroyed, you can't ask or question God about that. That's not what the Bible's teaching. It is not teaching a Calvinistic view of salvation. These are six questions based on what we've already been presented with Romans, in Romans chapter 9, and it's to cause us to reason our heart attitude toward God's Word and God's ways. And again, you may be asking the question in the last couple of weeks, why did God do it like that? Why did God choose Israel? Why did God count Isaac as the child of promise? Why did God give Pharaoh opportunity after opportunity and then, and then harden his heart? Why did God ultimately hold judgment against him? Why, 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 why? Man, listen, take your, you're not Israel, but, but listen, even modern Christians are really consumed with that question. Why? Why did this happen? And, and many times we, we really want an answer from God of why it happened, right? Well, uh, let me warn us from the scriptures this morning and educate us and edify us that, listen, there's three fundamental problems with the question why. As, as we see from Romans chapter 9, number one, when we ask why, it supposes that we, or, or you, if you ask it individually, it supposes that, that you could understand God's ways. When you ask of God why, well, it supposes that somehow you would actually be able to understand God's ways. Did you hear what I just said? It supposes that you could actually understand God's ways. And Isaiah 55 tells us very clearly that that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. I know that's hard to swallow for some of us because God doesn't think like you. <laughs> that's why he's God. <laughs> Amen. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. And that key word is as. So he's going to use an illustration to teach us how far apart his thoughts are from our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God just wants you to know on the record that as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, and many of you in this, this building know that the first heaven is our atmosphere, the earth's atmosphere, and many of you in this building know that the second heaven is outer space. And then beyond that is the very throne room of God, the third heaven, according 
to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God just says, that's how much higher my thoughts are than your thoughts. Uh, Are we okay? We're getting served a little humble pie right out of the bat this morning, aren't we? That's, That's how much higher my ways are compared to your ways. Well, well, that'll put you in a position to actually reverence God a little more, won't it? It actually brings you maybe down to reality to understand that I can't understand why God does what he does. He's God. And maybe, and maybe why is not the best question. Number two, another fundamental problem with the question why is, is that when we ask why, it places God on the witness stand of our courtroom. It places God on the witness stand of our courtroom. And again, you know, we're going to get back to the context of Romans 9 and Israel and, and what it specifically means. But I do want you to understand that there was a man in the Bible named Job, who, by the way, is a picture of Israel in a period of tribulation. And, and, and he experiences tremendous difficulty in his life, right? He, he loses his children. He loses his possessions. Ultimately, he loses his wife because she's against him and against God. He loses his health. And then his three friends show up, and they're the worst friends you can imagine because they blame him. And man, you've got to be in sin for this to be happening to you. You have friends like that? I hope they're not part of this church, but you may have friends like that. Listen, because it's always sin, right? Well, well, not always, And so as you read through the book of Job and you see this dialogue between Job and his wife and Job and his friends, and everybody's trying to just figure out why. Well, Job finally gets to the point in Job 31 and verse 35, and here's what he says, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me, and that mine adversary had written a book. I mean, do you know what Job just basically said? I want to call God into my courtroom and give an explanation of, of why. Ugh. Okay. Okay, I don't I don't know about you. And we don't think we don't think like that when we ask the question why, but but God wants us to educate us this morning and edify us. When we ask why, we really put God on the witness stand. And say, give an account. Give a reason. Why is this happening to me? Can I just tell you? Can I just tell you? You read the whole book of Job. You read it a hundred times if you want to. You know what you're not going to get from the book of Job? You're not going to get why. You're not going to get it. And what's interesting in Job's scenario is the same thing that's interesting in our scenario. You know, that book begins with the devil himself and the sons of God presenting themselves before the Lord. There is a spiritual warfare that's happening that Job is completely unaware of. And part of the why is because God's ways are higher than Job's. And God's thoughts are higher than Job's. And what God is doing in this entire created universe is so much higher and bigger than just Job. God, God's using Job as an example of a man that's going to be faithful even when he don't know why these things are happening. 
Number three, you know, the fundamental problem with the question why is when we ask the question why, it brings God into account to us. And, and, and who are we again? Who, who, are, who, who are we? You got it, man. We're his creation, and he's the creator. He is God. We are not. And, and listen, you know, Job is a lot like us. We want to know why until, until, listen, 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 until God actually shows up and answers. And, and by the way, God does show up and answer in chapter 38. And, and can I just tell you, the one asking the questions when he shows up ain't Job. It's God. It's the Lord. As a matter of fact, let me just read a few verses. I got, I got 1 through 13. I've only got a few on the screen. Look, Job 38 verse 1 says this, Then the Lord answered Job. You better be careful what you pray for. <laughs> he answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Hey, Job, this is, this is why this is happening, man. See, see Satan and his, his, his homies presented themselves before me, and, and really I wanted to show them through your life an example of a, a man that just trusts me so much in adversity and tribulation. And I also wanted to show through your life, Job, a, a picture of Israel going through the tribulation period and how, how I'm going to restore them at the very end. They're going to have to suffer a little bit, but then I'm going to restore them. And, and I just want you to see the big picture. Of what I'm... Oh, that's not verse 2? Oh, sorry. Here, here's, here's the Lord's answer. Who is this? That darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge. Hey, hey, Job, I hear something, but it has no knowledge. I hear you talking, but there's, there's no knowledge. Gird up now thy loins like a man. Can you, can you imagine the Lord? I mean, this is a bad day. When God tells you to buck, buckle up. We're fixing to go on a little ride. Gird up your loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me, he says. And then he gets into the, the main part of the text, which is not on the screen. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And listen, it is nothing but a chapter full of questions from God to Job to help him realize, you have a clue what you're talking about. My ways are way higher. My thoughts are way higher. As a matter of fact, God continues it in chapter 38. 39, 40, and 41. Four chapters. And then, and then Job kind of gets it. He's like, oh. Job 42, verse, verses 1 to 3. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou can do everything, canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. And here's the first question that God asked Job, and, and, and Job is going to answer who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? That's the first question that, that God asked Job. Here's the answer. Therefore, I have uttered that I understood not. 
things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. You know what Job did? He, he took it down a notch and realized, I don't even understand. I don't even, know, I don't even understand how to answer. I don't even understand. I don't understand what I'm talking about. You ever been there? Now, you know, most of us are quick to answer, and, 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 and we're also quick to ask. <laughs> the Bible does teach us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that there is such a thing as foolish and unlearned questions. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm just trying to make it practical. For, God is doing something with Israel in Romans chapter 9 that many people, one, don't understand, and two, question why. And God's just kind of going on record by not answering because you can't really understand. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 23, but foolish and unlearned questions, what does he tell us to do about those? Avoid them, knowing that they do gender strife. In other words, much much contrary to popular opinion, there are foolish questions. And actually, there are unlearned questions. And and what that means is, if they're unlearned questions, that it means that we may actually need to learn to ask the right questions. Does that make sense? When we learn, we actually know how to ask the right questions from the Word of God and from God Himself. Titus chapter 3 and verse 9 says this, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Some questions just are not profitable. They're vanity. And so God is doing something tremendous in Romans chapter 9 through the nation of Israel. And Paul understands this. And the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul goes on record to say, "Uh, why are you asking why? (laughs) Why are you asking why? God's a lot bigger. And He is God. And this is what He chooses. And, And... no offense, but when I see God, man, I'm going to ask You're not going to ask Him anything. You're going to wait for Him to say to you as you're prostrate on the ground, fear not. That's what you'll do. Every person in the Bible that ever came into the very presence of God died or acted as though they were dead until the Lord said, fear not. God stood them up. Does that make sense? You're not going to ask anything, friend. God wants us to understand sometimes the why is the wrong question. When God's at work, whether it's concerning Israel, whether it's concerning our life, there are bigger things at play than just our individual lives and, and, and God's plan for this earth through the nation of Israel. There are bigger things at play, and we just need to learn to trust God. Let's pick it up in point number two is this. We want to gain some clarity on the clay. We want to gain some clarity on the clay. And we're going to get into verse 21 because this is another portion of scripture that many people wrest out of context. They wrestle it out of the context. Again, it is a question. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Again, there are some that would teach, and I hate having to do this, but there are some that would teach That God unconditionally elected and chose some people to be made vessels of honor. And they equate that to salvation. 
And they would also say that God, before the foundation of the world, actually chose to, to predestine some people and, and form them into vessels of dishonor. And they would equate that with damnation. Well, that's easy for you to say. The question is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And here's the key principle that we need to get down concerning this point. The Bible clearly defines itself. The Bible clearly defines itself because it is a self-contained book. It is a self-defining book. 1 Corinthians 2 says that the Bible, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, the Spirit of God reveals what the mind of God is for us. So to say that the potter is God and the clay is individuals, well, that's a mighty big assumption. And you haven't proven that with a proper, excuse my language, hermeneutic. In other words, you've not proven it with a proper process of Bible study. You thought I was going to say a bad word, didn't you? I saw, I saw the look on your face. So here's the illustration. What is God teaching us with this potter and clay? I'm going to give you the answer and then I'm going to prove it to you. You okay with that? The potter in the illustration is God. It is the Lord. It, it, it is God. The clay in the illustration is the nation of Israel. Here's what the clay is not. It's not you as an individual. That's what it's not. That's exactly opposite of what some people teach from this passage. You say, Jay, how do you know that? How, do, how can you say with authority? By the, by the way, that's the question you should ask. How can you say with authority that that's Israel and not a person as an individual? Well, I'm glad you asked, even though you didn't raise your hand and ask it. Isaiah 64, let's look at what the Bible says as we cross-reference the word potter and the word clay. Are we okay this morning? You guys are really quiet. Okay, Isaiah 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. We are the what? We are the clay. Who is the we? And we'll get to the we in just a second. And thou art our potter, and we are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth, uh, very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are thy people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Whom is he talking about? He's talking about the nation of Israel. Without, without question, without hesitation, Isaiah 29 and verse 16 says this. By the way, this is a, a cross-reference back to Romans 9 and verse 20. I hope you brought your Bible study caps this morning because we're, we're going to get it this morning. Isaiah 29 and verse 16. Surely your turning, of good th- excuse me, your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say unto him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? That's exactly what we read in Romans 9 and verse 20. Who is he talking about? Well, you got to go to Jeremiah 18 to get the answer. Jeremiah 18 verses 1 to 4 says this, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, He wrought a work on the wheels, the potter wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay, listen, was marred. 
in the hand of the potter. It doesn't say the potter marred it. It says it was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel. And it seemed good to the potter to make it. You say, well, wait a second, Jay. You still haven't proven that the potter is God and that the clay is Israel. Read the very next verse, verse 5. Jeremiah 18 and verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand. Listen, so are ye in mine hand, individual people who have been predestined to salvation or damnation. Wrong. O house of who? The clay is Israel. All the way through the Bible. As a matter of fact, the potter and the clay, when you study every reference of that, it has nothing to do with individual salvation. As a matter of fact, when you read through the rest of that passage in Jeremiah 18, it says this, At what instance shall I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? And here's the condition. If that individual, no, no, no. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil I thought to do unto them, not him. It's a group of people. And at what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it, in other words, that nation, if it do evil in my sight that it obey not my voice, I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. The them is not a him. It's a nation. It's a kingdom. It's not Christians. It's the nation of Israel. The potter is molding the clay of the nation of Israel. It has everything to do with a nation. It has everything to do with a kingdom. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, it's not on the screen, but just listen. When those disciples met with Jesus after the resurrection, do you know what they asked Jesus Christ? They said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They're asking about the kingdom that God has promised. And God is going to take that clay that is Israel that was marred because of their sin and their rebellion. And God is going to take it and make it into a vessel of honor. He is going to restore that nation. Romans chapter 11 tells us that very clearly. We'll get to Romans chapter 11 probably right before the rapture, quite honestly. <laughs> or we may actually have to you know, go through this at the judgment seat of Christ together. I'm not really sure. I mean, Paul tells us in Romans 11 and verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And there are many that are ignorant in the 21st century. And many of them stand in pulpits and teach that the church is Israel. That you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness is part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. And it goes on and on. God is going to make a vessel of honor out of that nation. He's going to make a kingdom of honor that will bring honor and glory to him out of that people group. You say, why is he going to do that? Because he's God. Because he's God. So the... Again, 
I want you to understand, God is not fashioning and forming individuals as the potter to honor or to destruction. He's forming a nation. The whole context of the chapter is the nation of Israel. Let's get to this last point because we need, we need about 10 minutes here. We need, the last thing we want to see is the variation of the vessels. So I told you we're going to talk about questions. We talked about that. We're going to talk about clay. We talked about that. We need to talk about vessels. And this is where it's going to get really practical for us. So verse 22 says this. We're talking about the variation of vessels. So what if God, and by the way, if you see the phrase, what if, that's a hypothetical situation. Do you understand that? Well, what if God did this? Well, what if he didn't? <laughs> That's not a definitive declarative statement. It, it's, it's a question to cause you to think. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And again, it begins, this section begins with another question. And he's talking about vessels of wrath that are fitted for destruction and vessels of mercy. What in the world is God talking about? And why, why has God put this in his Bible? Well, you got to ask the question, first question is this, what is a vessel? And you, you always go back to the first mention in the Bible of that word to get the, the context and the definition. And so the first mention of the word vessel is found, or vessels is found, in Genesis 43, and he says in verse 11, Their father Israel said to them, If it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels. In other words, take the fruit of the land and put it where? In your, in your vessels and carry down to this man a present, a little balm and honey and spices and, and myrrh and nuts and almonds. And, and the context is Joseph and all that stuff right there. So so the point is that a vessel is a container. It's a container. You put something in it. You put something in it. You carry something in it. A, a vessel holds something. You can also draw out of that container. It, it can be drawn out of. It's just a vessel, just a container. And so in Matthew chapter 13, look, Jesus himself says the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind of fish. And that, that's what he's talking about. And when it was full, they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered the good. In other words, the good catch into what? Into vessels, but he cast the bad away. And even when Jesus was being crucified, they brought a vessel full of vinegar. And they dipped into that vessel a sponge. They pulled the vinegar out and they offered it to him. So a vessel is just a container. So here's the point. Let me get the doctrinal and then we'll move on. Look, Israel, as a nation, is going to make some choices. And their choice determines what God fills their vessel with. Do you see that? Listen, Israel has rebelled against God. And, and listen, his judgment is going to be poured out on them and will draw them to repentance. God is long-suffering with the nation of Israel. You say, how long-suffering is he? He's really long-suffering. <laughs> they've been around a lot longer than you, the United States. Listen, they've been around a long time. And, and God is con continually long-suffering with them, so much so that he's waiting for them to choose the ones that will choose him so that he can fill their vessel with his mercy. But let's talk about us, man. 
We, we, we've been heavy on Israel for the last couple of weeks, and we should be because God has a lot to say about Israel. But let's talk about us for a second. Do you know that you are a vessel? And as a vessel, you are either a vessel of wrath or a vessel of God's mercy. And what I mean by that is your life is a container, and it will be filled with, poured into and upon either God's wrath or God's mercy. And listen, before we came to Christ, we were all vessels of wrath. You say, well, I was a pretty good guy. In your mind, that's great. (laughs) You're a legend in your own mind. In God's eyes, God said you were fitted to destruction because of your rebellion against God. John chapter 3 and verse 36 says this, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, present tense. He that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, listen, abideth on him. In other words, a lost person, an unbeliever, someone who has not received the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are a vessel of wrath. The wrath of God is abiding presently on him or her. That would be motivation to get saved. You say, well, I haven't experienced God's wrath or judgment. I think we read the verse earlier out of Hebrews. It is appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. The wrath of God already abides on the lost. He or her is fitted to destruction. Listen, I lived 21 years on this planet as a vessel of wrath, meaning that because of my rejection of Christ and rejection of the things of God and my rebellion against his testimony through creation and through his word in my life, that I was fitted to receive the destruction that was due me because of my sin. By the way, if that doesn't motivate you to get saved, I don't know what else will. The second thing it ought to do is motivate you to go tell somebody how to get saved. Because every person that you see is either a vessel of wrath or a vessel of God's mercy. And you, you need to be bothered and ask the question, I wonder if this guy that lives next to me is saved or not. I wonder if this guy I work with is really saved or not. I wonder if this, this family member has really heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because presently speaking, the wrath of God abides on those that don't believe. Presently. Presently. However, God is long-suffering. Aren't you thankful? God is long-suffering. And listen, he's long-suffering with the nation of Israel, and that ought to prove to you that he's long-suffering with us. I mean, listen, God doesn't owe us more than a chance, by the way. He didn't owe Pharaoh more than a chance, and how many chances did he give him? He gave him numerous chances. He gave him general revelation. He gave him specific revelation. He gave him the rod. He gave him the water turned to blood. He gave him all the, 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 the uh, plagues of Israel, or excuse me, of Egypt, to, to see God's hand working. He's long-suffering. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. You know, men will promise you something and then not deliver. God will not. God's not slack concerning his promise. He's long-suffering to, to usward, not willing, listen, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How many people does the Lord Jesus Christ want saved? He wants all men to be saved. And the Calvinist has a really bad problem with this verse 
Because if God's will is irresistible, that means that God's will is that all men be saved. And if you can't resist it, oh, well, he means the, no, all means all. The fact that there are people in hell today proves that you can resist God's will. You have Luke chapter 16 in your Bible. You say, I don't know if anybody's in hell. You got Luke chapter 16, which is not a parable. It's a rich man and Lazarus, and they both died, and one went to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man is in hell, and he's still there today. You see, it's, it's not God's will that any should perish. And the, and the key to salvation is to align your will with God's will. God wants to save you, but you have to come to Christ. You've got to confess your, confess your sin. You have to believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead for your sin and for your salvation. And your faith and trust is in his finished work, the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man that died for our sin. That's how you move from a vessel of wrath to a vessel of mercy. That's how God shows his mercy. We covered that two weeks ago. God sets the conditions for his mercy. And in this time period, it's through Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus Christ. So let's talk about this vessel of mercy for just a second, and then we're done. This vessel of mercy. You know, when you study vessels in the Bible, this, this would be an hour-long Bible study in and of itself. And if you want to stick around, no, I'm just kidding, I know. Some of you are like, I thought you said you weren't preaching long. I went over like 10 minutes last week. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Bible teaches us that there are different types of vessels. Now listen, before you get saved, you're a vessel of wrath. But after, after you've get, gotten saved, listen, you, you can be a vessel of honor or dishonor as a child of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 says this, in, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. You say, well, wait a second. Uh, it sounds like God is just, again, choosing... No, actually, you, you as a lost man aren't in the house if you're unsaved. Do you understand that? The house is the church of God, the house of God, the house of the living God. So in that great house, there are vessels of honor, but also dishonor. Verse 21 says, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. It sounds a lot like verse 20, 21 says that the man gets to choose what kind of vessel he is. Not God. Not God predestining you or pre-electing you to be honorable or dishonorable. It sounds like if a man chooses, by the way, after he's been saved, he can choose to get saved or not. And then after he gets saved, he can choose He can choose what kind of vessel he's going to be. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel to honor, sanctified, meet, in other words, suitable for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. So if you're lost, you're not in the great house to begin with. You need to accept Christ. If you are saved, listen. God's mercy has been poured out upon you. Well, are you going to be a vessel of honor or dishonor for the Lord? And this is where it gets practical. Because verse 21 says that a man has to make a choice. 
In other words, if he wants to be a vessel of honor, there's some things that he has to do. He has to purge himself from some things so that he can be prepared for some things. And we don't have time. I know you got a bunch of notes about being sanctified and being meet and being prepared unto every good work. I, do, I just want you to realize that, that that doesn't happen automatically. It is God's will that you're sanctified. It is God, listen, let me back up. It's God's will that you get saved. Unashamedly, the Bible is very clear on this subject. And anyone willing to come to Christ can be saved. It is God's will that you be a vessel of honor. In other words, that you be sanctified. And, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let me just get to this verse. The Bible says, this is the will of God. That's really hard. I wonder what God's will is. Uh, well, if you just look in the Bible... Uh, it's in there. One, it's that you get saved. God's will is also that you be sanctified. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his... Oh, there it is again, man. And sanctification and honor. The bottom line is, it's a choice. You get to choose what kind of vessel you are. You, you get to choose... You get to choose whether or not God uses you, whether or not you're prepared. It does say that a man has to purge himself from some things. One of those things is fornication. You can't be fornicating or pornicating and be prepared for God's use. You've you got to make a choice. You've got to possess your vessel. You know, it also says in, in, in 2 Timothy that that vessel is meat. It's suitable for the master's use. That means that some vessels aren't suitable to be used by God. And I don't know about you, man, but I, I would like to live the rest of my days being used by God. I mean, what else is there in this life? Let's just be honest. You know, in Acts chapter 9, concerning the apostle Paul, Saul, who became the apostle Paul, the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a, he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Man, God wanted to use the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul wanted to be used by God. He lined up his will with God's will for his life. And that's where we sometimes miss it. We, we forget that we're to line up our will after we get saved. <laughs> God's not done with you. Prepared unto every good work. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. We could, we could exhaust the, the Scripture resources. Colossians talks about being fruitful in every good work. 2 Thessalonians talks about being established in every good word and work. He even says that the ministry, the office of a bishop, is a good work. It's work. So, so we have to purge ourselves from some things so that we can be prepared for some things. So here's the key question, and I'll close with this. Look, we saw with Israel, their choice determined what God filled them with. You know, wrath or, or mercy, honor or dishonor. Well, can I tell you the same is true for us? The, the key is this at the end of your notes. Look, our choice determines what God fills our vessel with. It's our choice. And, and listen, there's nothing greater than to be a vessel of honor for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, listen, there is nothing greater that God would want to show His name and His power through this whole earth 
through you, through you and through me. But we have to decide, listen, are we going to be vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy? Number one, the first decision you got to make is, are you saved or not? And if you're not, will you come to Christ? Will you humble yourself and come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? I know we're done, and I know you're putting your notes up, and I know your belly's growling. I know all those things. Mine is too, because that fritter I had like two hours ago is not working right now. It's already gone. Okay. Man, listen, don't walk out of here with the wrath of God abiding on your life. Do you hear me? Presently, if you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to understand that the wrath of God abides on you presently. And God didn't want you to die and go to hell. So if you, if you need to get saved, today's the day to get saved. You say, you sound like you're pressuring me. I'm not pressuring you, but I am preaching. <laughs> And if the Spirit of God is, is working in your heart to settle that issue, you need to settle it today. The second thing is, listen, church, we get to choose what kind of vessel we're going to be. Is it going to be a vessel of honor or dishonor? If we want to be used of God, church, listen, we have to be willing to purge some things from our life. We cannot be used of God and be a vessel of dishonor. We have to get some things out of our life so that we can be prepared for the things that God wants to put in our life and for the work that he's called us to do. And listen, some of us today, our prayer may need to be, I need to purge some things. You know, we're in the season of spring cleaning right now. Anybody doing any spring cleaning? We got two kids' closets knocked out yesterday. We got bags of trash, bags of old toys, bags of clothes. We started purging yesterday. Hallelujah. <laughs> You know, you walk in your kid's room with a trash bag and they start freaking out, right? I think somebody posted that and it was awesome. I know who posted that. And we did that yesterday. And now, and now there's room for the right things in my kid's room. As a Christian, there's got to be some things purged. Because there's no room for the right things if we don't get things out of our life. You hear me? And, and, it, and it's up to us. We have to make a choice. What kind of vessel do we want to be? Let's pray and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you again for the morning.